You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Church, if you have a Bible, grab one and turn to Luke 15. Guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. This morning, we're going to continue in our series, uh, which we've, uh, we're talking about our marks of maturity. And now we fall on the third uh, mark on engage. And uh, we have marks of maturity here because we talk a lot about making disciples. And when we talk about making disciples, we don't know what kind of disciples we're talking about, which is why we come to a series as we've taken a pause in the book of Genesis to talk about what kind of disciples are we trying to make here together at covenant hope. And so this morning, I hope it's an opportunity for you to hear more about who covenant hope is. It's also an opportunity for us as members here at covenant hope to remind us of who we are called to be and how we will make disciples together. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, as Pastor Ryan said, this is a safe place for you to ask questions and see what we're about. And so if you don't have a Bible as well, you can grab one of those black hardcover Bibles in the pew back in front of you and turn to page 928 to follow along with us. When I was a kid, my dad would often say to me, son, you'd lose your head if it wasn't attached. Now, I think I've gotten better over the years at finding things, or at least not losing them as often as I did as a child, Uh, But it still happens, right? Oftentimes I'll lose my phone and I don't know where my phone's at. So if you text me, I don't know where it is. I'm not gonna be able to text you back. But what do I do? I look at my watch and it's got this cool feature where it it dings it wherever it's at in the house. And sometimes though it dings it, and I really don't hear it. And I'm like, where could my phone be? And so I have to start roaming the house and trying to find where is my phone. Or don't get, don't get me started on my keys. If I move my keys somewhere, I don't know where they are. Ashley, my wife, has, has been so gracious to me. She puts a little caddy right there in the kitchen. When I come in the door, I can put my keys down so I don't lose them. Uh, if I put them down there, that means I know where they're at. And I go to that spot every day to get my keys and walk out the door. Now, those are very trivial things, right? Talk about my keys. It's to do something with something very expensive, right? I have a car that I've bought and purchased. I've got a phone. You have maybe lost something that you've searched diligently for. And just like the sheep and the coin in in these stories, they're only of so much value. But if we miss what these parables are talking about, we're going to miss that these, yes, are valuable. But there's something much more valuable in the eyes of our Lord. And that's people. Lost people. Over the last three weeks, we've talked about our marks of maturity. We've talked about first confess that we are a family of believers confessing the truth of the gospel individually and collectively. Last week, Pastor Ryan preached from 2 Corinthians 3, talking about we are being transformed by the power of the gospel into the image of Christ. And this morning we come to this third mark to engage, that we are a family of believers engaging our world with the hope of the gospel. I think here in Luke 15, it describes the heart of hope 
for engaging our world and, and engaging our community. And, and it brings some reminders for us. So as we walk through the text this morning, here's what we're going to see. Jesus explains to the religious leaders that he cares deeply for the lost and sin and will search for them and find them. I heard a pastor say chapter 15 of Luke is the heart of Luke's gospel. It is the heart of Luke's gospel. Now, if you're a disciple today, what are you to know and do? The hope that God seeks and saves lost people must motivate us to engage the lost people around us. It must motivate us. If we're going to engage people with the hope of the gospel, we want to make sure that our motivations are right. That God loves lost people. And so should we. And if you remember, even if you were brought up in the church, you were lost. And the gospel was preached to you. And God came in that moment to save you. And so now we, as God's people, must remember our own stories as we come to this chapter in Luke. So this morning, what I want to do is I'm, I'm going to walk through the passage very quickly, make some comments, and then I want to pull out some motivations for us this morning. So look back there at verse 1, and let's look at it together. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So what Luke does, he provides a setting for us to understand the point of these parables or the point of these stories. Okay, Jesus is hanging out with lost people. Not just lost people, though. Publicly scandalous lost people. Like when you hang out with these people, you get a reputation. And the religious leaders, they downright don't like it. They think Jesus is doing something wrong. They can't stand it. Right, so there's two groups of people, right? That's what triggers these stories, right? The two groups, number one, the religious leaders, that is the Pharisees and the scribes, they are the religious elite of the day. They are the ones you go to when you want to talk about a, an issue of, of religion or trying to follow God. They are mad at Jesus. And then the other group is the tax collectors. These are the people that... Nobody likes because, you see, tax collectors were Jewish people. And the Jewish people had to have a job. They were so desperate to work that they would be a tax collector. And what they'd have to do is they'd have, you know, Rome said, you have to take this much. And they'd have to take more to have an own living. And so what happened was many of them would begin to take much more than they needed. And they were really hurting their uh, fellow Jews. And so they were people that you did not want to associate with. They became rich because of this. Some would say sinfully rich and socially outcast. If you think about it this way, they were kind of like the mafia in their day. You know you don't want to hang out with them. You know they're doing bad things. And you know that at the end of the day, they're, they're going to hurt somebody. That's, what the ta- that's how the tax collectors were viewed. And you actually you see in the previous chapters that Jesus came to seek and save the poor. But here in Luke 15, he comes to seek and save the rich. And this is the context. Now, Jesus is going to provide these stories. It's an us versus them mentality when it comes to the Pharisees and scribes. It's us versus them. We're not like them. Jesus, why are you hanging out with them? 
They are not worthy of being hung out with. They're not worthy of eating at our tables. When Jesus wanted the Pharisees and the scribes to understand what he was about, hear me. He told them about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and the story of lost sons. Don't lose sight of who who the audience is here this morning. It's, It's not just those who are coming to hear Jesus, coming to receive forgiveness and to receive salvation. That's not the only people. Luke is very clear. The audience are those who think they're righteous. This parable invites us to be different, though. To not repeat the grumbling, but to join in the celebration of those lost now being found. How will we respond today? Keep reading. So he told them this parable. What man among you would, has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in an open field to go after the lost one until he finds it? Now, if you've got ninety-nine sheep, a hundred, and one goes missing... What, why would you go get the lost when you've got 99 you've got to take care of? But here's the thing. In the first century, 100 sheep is a lot of sheep. And so most likely the, the shepherd would have under shepherds who was taking care. So he could leave the 99 to go get the lost sheep, to care for it. But at the end of the day, the shepherd didn't want to have 99 sheep. He wanted to have 100 sheep. The emotion of losing the one sheep was more than just caring for the 99. And that motivation then pushes him to go seek. Now look at the shepherd's response when he finds it. When he found it, verse 5, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and his neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven. Now heaven represents God's response. It's a way for Luke to to talk about God's, how he feels about it. More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Verse 8, or the woman who has 10 silver coins. Now, Jesus is a master teacher, right? Master teacher. I think that's why he chose a woman, because women can find anything. Men cannot find nothing, right? We go to the refrigerator and we're looking, where's the ketchup at? And we, we can't, when we're staring us in the face, we can't find it. And our wives graciously come over and they just grab the ketchup right out of the refrigerator and say, this is what you're looking for. Yes, that was it. I, I, stood, I would have stood there for 30 minutes if I didn't have you to come get this ketchup out. But Jesus is smart. He talks about a woman. If she loses one coin, does, not, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? All right, so understand, this coin uh, is, is very important. It actually would probably cost the same amount for a sheep. Right? It would be one-fifth. Five coins would be the price for an ox. This coin was like a paycheck. I know for many of you young folks that have jobs now, you got direct deposit. Used to, we would get a check from our, our, our employers, and we'd have to sign it and take it to the bank. If you lost those checks... It was very difficult to go to your employer and say, hey, I lost a check. Can you write me another one? So this, this coin is very important. And she goes and she searches for it. Verse 9, when she finds it, she calls her friends. And they, just like the shepherd, rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Again, God's angels represent heaven and heaven represents God. God is joyful 
about these lost things now being found. But now, Luke goes into this, this third story, this third parable. And many of you know this third parable. You probably have heard it called the, the parable of the prodigal son. I think that's a terrible title. I mean, as we talk about it more, it's actually the parable of the two lost sons. It's the parable of the both of them are lost. Now, let's look at what I mean here. Look at verse 11. He also said, Jesus drives home the point here with this third parable. A man had two sons. Now, the father is the main character of the parable, not the sons. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. The son basically says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Go ahead and give me my money. That's, that's basically what he says. I'm not concerned about you or being here with the family. Give me the money. That's what had sorely harmed the reputation of the family. This means at some level, the father now feels, I haven't raised my son rightly. But look what the father does. So he distributed the assets to them. Just a quick observation here. The father meets the son's impatient request with patience. I'm going to give you this. Even though I know you know it's not good for you. Verse 13, not many days later, the young son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. And he went to work for one of the citizens of the country who set him in the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating from. That's a terrible place. I mean, that's not a good place to be. But no one would give him anything, right? For Jews, they consider pigs and Gentiles to be about even. So the son had lost everything, lost all of his money, lost all of his stuff, couldn't even eat what the pigs were eating. And he's also lost his identity because now he's, he's no better than a pig. He's past the point of no return. He can't come home. So we think. Look at verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food and I'm here dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. Church, let me be just one point of application. Remorse is coupled with action. So when the son realizes, what am I doing? He gets up and he goes. He goes back to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Bring out the ring and put it on his finger and the sandal on his feet. Give him the best of our stuff. Give it to him. And let's celebrate. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine, here's why he celebrates, was dead, is now alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
The father now celebrates. We actually get a picture of what the celebration looks like back in the parable of the sheep and the parable of the coin. The father stops at nothing. He throws the best party in the world to receive back his lost son. He holds nothing back. Now the older son, remember there are two sons. The older son was in the field. He came near the house. He heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of his servants. Now notice, the son is so angry, so put off by this situation. He doesn't even come into the house, not one time. Questions, what, what, what do these things mean? And they said, your brother is here. Your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. His father graciously comes to his, his son and pleads, come into the house with us and celebrate. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving for many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat. Not even a goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you've slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me. And I have, and what yours or what is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. Notice what the father says. This is why we're celebrating. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Notice what the father does very graciously. He reminds his elder son, this is your brother that you should care for, that we must celebrate that we found him. And so Jesus, he, he drives the point home that the lost are our brothers and sisters, that we're to care for them. And what you see throughout the whole passage, throughout the whole chapter, our God loves lost people. There's hope that God loves us, that God loves lost people, and that he, when he searches for them, he will find them. So here's the thing. As we walk through these implications, I want to provide three motivations, three motivations for engaging our community from Luke chapter 15. Number one, the first motivation the hope of our repentance. The hope of our repentance. All three of these stories. And they, they talk about repentance in one way or another. But what we see is there is a divine initiative, right? God is to seek and to save the lost. But there's also a response by those who are being sought after, right? Repentance is a gift. It's not something that is deserved or something that can be demanded. First, God is the one who seeks what is lost, the sheep and the coin and the two sons. Neither the sheep nor the coin know they're lost, Right, hence at why people are more valuable. And the sons only recognize the situation after the father has been good to them. And secondly, I don't want you to miss this. Repentance is responding in action to God's compassion. Remember what the son did? He remembered his father's goodness. He went home. But as he was far off, what does it say? The father saw him. God doesn't lose 
people. He knows where we are. And when the father saw him, he ran after him. Before he could ever utter a word, the son, the father rushes to him, embraces him, hugs him, kisses him. And that's when the son is able to repent. Because of the father's compassion, because the father welcomed him home, now the son knows that he's welcomed. You see, the lost son teaches us something about lost people and how they should respond to God. We should repent. We should repent before God because he has sought us in his son, in Jesus Christ, to die in our place. We should repent of our sin. We should turn away from our old ways and come back to God. But the elder son also teaches us something about repentance. When we see someone else repent and receive divine grace and kindness, compassion, and even blessing, it reveals our own hearts. How how do you respond when someone experiences grace and kindness and forgiveness? But is 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 it that one little thing in our hearts that says, I've been doing all the right things. I deserve that. How we respond to lost people being found is an indicator on us being in tune with God because God loves lost people and God searches for lost people. Consider the Pharisees and the scribes. They thought they didn't need repentance, right? They are self-righteous. This is what Jesus means by the 99 that don't need repentance. Jesus is not saying that people in general don't need repentance. He's saying if you think you don't need repentance, if you see yourself as righteous, if you are self-righteous, may we not be like the Pharisees, church, convincing ourselves that we don't need repentance, Right? When we convince ourselves that we don't need repentance, that puts us in a dangerous situation. Both in terms of salvation, but it also erodes the motivation to go and engage our world. Right? We, if we remember our own repentance, it can motivate us to help lost people know the compassion and kindness of our God. People who are different than us. People who get on our nerves. People who have bad reputations. When we remember our own stories, may we never forget that the hope of our repentance leads us to salvation and it leads us to engaging people who don't know Jesus. Remember your story. Remember how God saw after you and he saved you. Our testimony should be the first and foremost place it should shape our hearts towards God but it should also shape our hearts towards lost people because we were lost dead in sin the hope of others repentance leads us to engage them with the gospel and the first motivation is to engage our community is the hope of our repentance but the second motivation is the hope of our evangelism At the end of the day, we see that God is concerned for the lost. He will endure trouble, endless trouble, to find those who are lost. I have hinted at this this morning, but let me be clear. Jesus used the argument of lesser to greater. Right? If, If a sheep and a coin 
a daily wage, are valuable to God, then how much more are people valuable to God? Remember the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Jonah says, nope, I don't want any part of that. He runs. God finds him on, on the sea, sends a storm. Jonah's like, you know what? I, he tells the sailors, if you throw me overboard, this will stop the, the storm. So they throw him overboard. And, John, and to be honest, I kind of think Jonah does that because like, I'd rather die than go to Nineveh because Nineveh is our arch enemy. I don't want Nineveh to repent. And so they throw him over into the sea. And oftentimes we think of the, the, the fish as God's punishment, but no, it's salvation. And so the fish, he, he gets Jonah, he's in the belly, spits him up on dry land, and God comes back one more time. Go to, go to the city of Nineveh. So Jonah goes, he goes. Maybe he learned, maybe he has it, we're not sure. He preaches, they repent. They repent. The wicked city of Nineveh, worse than the tax collectors, they repent. And God shows them mercy. So Jonah and his grumpy old self goes up the mountain and he sits down and he watches. He's like, maybe, maybe they'll turn back to their sin. Maybe they'll turn back. So he sits there and he watches and he waits. In the midst of that, God sent a heat against him. Like literally, uh, I, heard, I heard somebody say, it, like, it was like it was beating down, boxing him down. But then the Lord calls the plant to grow. It, it provided shade for him. So Jonah's nice and happy. Now he's got shade, and he's ready to watch some fireworks. In his mind, that's what he thinks. He thinks they're going to get God's judgment. But God sends a worm, and the worm eats the tree, and the tree withers. And now Jonah doesn't have any shade, and now he's mad, and it's hot. And he's like, God, I could just die. And God graciously and kindly comes to him. And he says, you didn't work and labor over that tree. Why should you be angry about a tree? How much more should I care for these people who are lost? And the question, we don't see Jonah's response, and I think that's on purpose. In the same way here that we're talking about how our hearts are filled do we understand that people are valuable? How important are lost people to you? How important are lost people to us? Secondly, if the shepherd and the woman take every effort to find what is lost, how much more would God take to seek those who are lost? He's concerned for the lost. He doesn't just put up a sign. He actively searches for them. Right, Jesus is saying, I seek the laws for God, and so should you. If you've encountered the life-giving gospel, then you should seek those who do not know me. Our Lord finds what is most important in the world. We join Jesus in these efforts. So this is it's super helpful when we remember that it is our God who is searching lost people. Number one, it should help motivate us to get into, get into action, but also it should lessen the pressure. God is the one who seeks the lost. God is the one who saves the lost. We don't do that. We're just joining God on his mission together. And we're just finding, where is he working? Where is he working? Yesterday, and I know Peter did not ask me to share this, but yesterday he got to share the gospel with a young lady and she professed faith in Jesus Christ. 
He didn't know who God was going to call. He just knew that he's just going to join people on the way, wherever we go. We're going to invite people to respond in repentance. Because people matter. God's concern for the lost must be our concern for the lost. And so what must we do? Well, two actions that kind of flow from this motivation. Right? Number one, we should build friendships with lost people. We should build friendships with lost people. I have to ask all of us, do we have occasions that unbelievers can chat with us, spend time with us? Do we have lost friends? Friends that you would call in case of emergency. Friends that you would let your children hang out with. Our desire for people to be saved, our desire for our church to grow, our desire for Youngsville Wake Forest to be impacted by the gospel all depends on our relationships with lost people. Notice what Jesus does. Go back to the top of the, of the chapter. Notice what Jesus does. Look down at verse 2. Look at the accusation of the religious leaders. Jesus welcomes them and eats with them. Jesus doesn't just preach to them. He doesn't just hand out literature to them. He welcomes them into his sphere of life. Meals were a means by establishing who was in and out. If you were not let into the meal, then you were not a part of the family. Hospitality, welcoming people to our dinner tables, is one of the most intimate ways of building relationships. I would encourage you. I know that many of you ask each other over to have dinner and to enjoy time together. But what about lost people? What about the people in your neighborhood? What about the people you work with? What about the people your children go to school with? To invite them in to your home and around your table and to get to know them with no agenda other than to love them. But for Jesus... In the eyes of the Pharisees, he was hanging out with the worst of the worst. It was like he was going to Vegas. It was like he was in the most horrible places in the town. Places that he shouldn't be. But no matter what is said of us, will we be welcoming, hospitable to lost people, building friendships with them? Now, let me ask this question. What brought them into his circle? What brought them into his sphere of influence? He preached the good news of the gospel. You've, heard, you've probably heard this phrase, actions speak louder than words. While I do agree with that statement, I also believe this, words speak the loudest with action. Words speak the loudest with action. In the 21st century America, the soil of people's hearts is hard. People are not searching for the most part, at least in our area, in our context, it's difficult. And so we must, yes, preach, we must invite, and we must preach, and it must be coupled together. So we invite people. We must share the gospel and build relationships. We must share what Jesus has done in our lives. We must invite people into our homes. When we engage, what some people may call that is servant evangelism or evangelism in action, we can have the most impact we can engage, which is why we picked that word, we can engage our world. Because the ultimate goal is for people to know Jesus. But sometimes it takes a little bit of work. I can't just go outside and throw some seed on the ground and expect that to grow. I have to, I have to do some digging. I have to do some tilling. I have to rake over that ground so that it's a good environment for the seed to be sown and so that it can grow and produce fruit. 
It's the same thing with us. That we provide an environment for lost people, our relationships, our home, so that they can then hear the gospel and respond to it. This is what it looks like for us to engage people, to love them with the end goal of them knowing Jesus. But secondly, yeah, we should build friendships, but we should also bridge friendships, bridge friendships. And we should do that to the church. And I want you to notice the direction, the moral influence here, right? It's not from the tax collectors to Jesus. Jesus is not being corrupted. It's from Jesus to the tax collectors, right? Jesus cannot be corrupted by sin. He has no fear of being contaminated, either physically or spiritually. The darkness of sin and the hopelessness of sin cannot overtake the light of the gospel. It's impossible. But here's the deal. We're not Jesus. We're not Jesus. So this does not give us a license to go wherever we want to and be like, hey, I'm just engaging lost people and put us in, in not so wise situations. Proverbs warns us that the, that with wisdom that those who are, are righteous can be corrupted by those who are wicked. So what do we do? How do we build relationships? Well, we bridge relationships with the church family. Right? We, we must do this in community. We can't do this on our own. To be this kind of witness, we need a strength of holiness, a heart of compassion. But we need people to keep us accountable. That we're not falling in temptation to the things that may come with engaging lost people. We understand that because of Jesus, we are to have no sin, but we are not to be separated from sinners. Our church, when it believes and lives out the gospel, will display that gospel to the lost. The hope of our evangelism is the power of Jesus in the community of the church. And so we see the first and second motivations for engaging our community, the hope of our repentance and the hope of our evangelism. But the third motivation is, is the sweetest. The third motivation is this, the hope of God's joy. The hope of God's joy. As we reflect on these three stories, at the core of Jesus' point is the joy of God's response to the lost being found. I've said it and I'll say it again. God loves sinners. God loves lost people. Let that sink in. You know this is true because you are a sinner. From your own experience, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you once were a sinner. And Romans 5 tells us that even when we were enemies of God, he loved us. He sent his son to die for us. God rejoices when sinners respond in repentance to the gospel. Look back up at verses 5 and 9. When the shepherd finds the lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders to carry it home. I don't know if you know, but sheep can weigh between 70 and 100 pounds. That's heavy. That's dead weight that he's carrying. But he's not concerned with that. He's happy. He's ready to celebrate. Why? Because it's worth it. The joy overtakes him. He's not thinking about the burden. I think about ladies who are pregnant and are going to have children. The burden of carrying a child is, is, is outpaced by the joy of having that child in our arms. Or in delivery. with The pain of labor is all melted away with the joy of knowing that baby is now born. This is the same joy that God has when he welcomes people back into his family. This is the kind of joy that we're called to have. 
And now see what both the shepherd and the woman do. When they find the sheep and the coin, they call their friends. Hey, come celebrate with me. I have found what was lost. In a communal communal society like the first century, joy must be shared to be genuine. We face the opposite in a society of independence. Joy is often not shared. This kind of joy is contagious, though. When we see lost people come to faith, when we see people get baptized and respond uh, to, to obedience in Christ, that's contagious. You know how this feels when, when somebody's making you laugh and you look over to see if someone else is laughing because you want them to laugh with you? It's contagious. Or you know that one person that if you watch you know, you know, some healthy comedy and you're like, hey, come watch with me because the way they laugh, you just kind of want to laugh with them because they're fun. That's what happens when we're talking about joy when lost people come to faith. It's contagious. You see, the first century church grew because they understood the joy that it was to see lost people come to faith. And it's very easy in our very busy lives to lose the joy of someone who doesn't know Jesus repenting from their sin. When that happens, it is beautiful and it is joyous. And we get to do that together. So we get to call each other, hey, let's celebrate when that happens. When a church rejoices over lost people coming to Jesus, the floodgates open up for the gospel to spread deeper into our community. Luke 15 is such a beautiful passage, but don't forget the setting of the story. Jesus is sharing these parables with the Pharisees. They, like the elder brother, care more for possessions than lost people. I mean, just look at his response. Verse 8, he becomes angry. Verse 9, he complains to his father about the celebration. Verse 29, again, he doesn't think he needs repentance. People who haven't received God's joy over their own repentance cannot understand why others would celebrate the repentance of lost people. Let me say that to you again. People who have not received God's joy over their own repentance cannot understand why others would celebrate the repentance of lost people. The only way we can be joyful is because we know the joy that is happening in heaven when a lost person turns to God. And you see, this elder brother, he missed the whole point. He thinks works would receive love and would receive a reward. Right? He thinks celebrating with his friends is what he deserves. He's no different than the younger brother. He just couched it in self-righteousness and legalism. I've done everything for you. And when, it, when, it come, when the chips are down, he says, you didn't even give me a goat. He wanted exactly what the younger brother wanted. He was just too scared to tell his father what the truth was. Church, may our hearts not be like this elder brother. May the joy of our salvation, the joy of repentance, may the joy of God's love for lost people motivate us to engage those around us. What are the things in your life that you care more for than for lost people? Is it your time? Is it your comfort? Is it your schedule? Is it your nice and neat home? What are the things that are a barrier to you loving lost people and seeking them joyfully? 
Church, my hope for us is not that we just engage our community with the gospel, but my prayers that our hearts are so shaped by the joy of our Father that we have true and right motivations in engaging our community. I don't just want the, I just don't want the results. I want a people who are joyful. I want to be a person who is joyful over lost people repenting of the gospel. And if I'm honest, that's really hard for me. It's hard for me to put myself in situations that I think are just kind of wrong. That's exactly what our Lord does. He walks into these situations and he speaks the truth and he does it with grace and he calls people to himself. Joy is the necessary response of God's people. It's, it's really the only option, though. When we've experienced joy, then we now get to show joy for other people. The invitation is open. Will you join God's celebration of the lost being found? Or will you be angry about those who come to Jesus? Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would shape our hearts that you would help us love lost people like you do. I pray that we would cultivate hearts that love lost people. Would we see the hope of our own repentance and the repentance of others that would be a motivator for us? Would the hope of evangelism, both speaking the gospel and living the gospel and welcoming people into our lives, God, would would that motivate us to to see lost people come to faith. God, and ultimately, as we looked at the joy you have over finding lost people, may that shape us deeply. May we rejoice over those who are being found. May it motivate us to go out and search and seek and speak to share what Jesus has done in the same way that you did, to send your son into a lost and broken world. So God, would you help us be a church that emulates this kind of heart, this kind of motivation? Would we be a church that engages our community, not for our sake, but for their sake? God, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.